Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday sermon was given by guest preacher, Reverend Michael Allen. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 40, found in the New Testament section of our Pew Bibles on page 78. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Almighty, loving, and merciful God, Tell us what we need to hear, and show us today what we ought to do to obey Jesus Christ. In your powerful name we pray. Amen. Luke 19, verse 28. Jesus went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice, for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My wife and I are excited and delighted to be with you once again. And we give all honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of our home, the head of this church. And what a privilege uh, to be with you to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Every time I'm here, I always remind you of how much we love your pastor and his wife, Judith. In the last uh, 10 years or so since we've known them, they've become such 
dear friends uh, to us, and uh, we always enjoy getting together and spending time together, and I always enjoy uh, filling in for him whenever he needs me to. You have such a, a gentle leader, a gentle shepherd, a good shepherd in uh, Pastor Ray, and I'm sure you know that, and uh, we're privileged to know him. This morning, as we take a look at this scripture, I've entitled my message, The Palm Before the Storm. It's a play on the words that we've all heard, the calm before the storm. Ancient sailors are credited to have coined uh, this phrase. It refers to an unusual stillness in the air. Uh, an eerie peace before a sudden outburst of a violent thunderstorm. Uh, meteorologists uh, tell us that a unique set of circumstances in the atmosphere have to come together to experience this type of calm before the storm. And it's Palm Sunday today, and so we're going to talk about the palm before the storm. I'd like to use the subtitle, Divided by Jesus, given by your pastoral team. Now, as we think of this, all four gospel accounts record Palm Sunday events, <clears throat> but each of them have unique details and emphasis. The Apostle John is the only one of the four accounts who made specific reference to palm branches being cut and laid down on the road for the Lord. John also gives us some more backstory details leading up to Palm Sunday. You see, it was on the western slope of the Mount of Olives in a little town called Bethany that Jesus wept for Lazarus, one of his best friends who who had died there. It was there that he wept in sorrow with Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, as they grieved the death of their beloved brother. But on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, Jesus rode a donkey surrounded by throngs of people excitedly shouting and singing praise to God for him. Jesus wept over the sins of people because he knew that in just five days' time, the cheers of praise from the crowds would turn to jeers. Jeers for his crucifixion. Perhaps it's no coincidence that the name of the town Bethany literally means house of weeping. Just like Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethany means house of weeping. But on this very first Palm Sunday, our text begins with a command from our Lord Jesus telling two of his disciples to go and to get a donkey for him. And as Jesus mounted the donkey and continued his short journey over the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, the village people began laying down their coats and 
palm branches as if to make a hero's welcome and a grand entrance into the city of Jerusalem for our Lord Jesus. Verse 37 tells us that the whole crowd of disciples joyfully shouted praise to God and proclaimed Jesus as King who came in the name of the Lord. They did this because they had seen Jesus work miracles just a few days before even the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, they, they then, because of all these miracles they had seen as they had followed him, some of them from Galilee to the north all the way down to Jerusalem, they speculated that he was the prophesied king sent for their salvation. And he was, except they were thinking that he would save them from the hated Roman occupation. And Jesus was thinking of the more deceitful and grievous occupation of sin. And they were thinking of an earthly kingdom. Jesus was thinking of a heavenly one. Verse 39, some of the religious leaders known as Pharisees, they wanted Jesus to reject the claims of his kingship and his kingdom by silencing the crowds. But the crowds were closer to the truth than the Pharisees. At least the crowds knew that he must be a king who will establish his kingdom. Uh, they just got the sphere of influence wrong. Their timing and their location were wrong. But now notice it's Palm Sunday and the crowds are going wild with enthusiasm and praise. And Jesus is soaking it in. He's not rejecting it which tells us that he believes that he really is God in the flesh, worthy of praise. It's like a parade, and Jesus is the grand marshal in the lead parade float. He should be smiling and waving at the crowd, right? But look at verse 41. It wasn't read for us today, but in just one verse below what was read for us, when Jesus saw the city of Jerusalem as he crested the Mount of Olives on the back of the donkey. He saw what everyone else saw, the beautiful, crowded, old, walled city of Jerusalem. But he also saw beyond the hustle and the bustle of the city. He, he saw beyond the faces of the people. He saw their hearts heavily laden with sin. He knew how the cheering crowds would turn to jeering crowds, seeking his crucifixion when they didn't get what they wanted just five days later. And so what did he do? With the intimate knowledge of every single person crowded around him, what did he do? He, he wept in brokenness over their sin, their sin of willful blindness and rejection of him and the true salvation that he came to offer. The word Luke used here for Jesus weeping is a different word than the one that John used in his gospel. Luke uses the word which means loud, uncontrollable, sobbing kind of weeping when it says that Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. Church family, 
It's Palm Sunday and Jesus is still weeping. He weeps with us in our sorrow, but he also weeps for us. He weeps over us in our sin. And there is a difference between those two kinds of weeping. Let's not miss that. So what about you? What about me? When was the last time, excuse me, when was the last time that you wept with someone who wept? When was the last time you wept over, for example, the cities of Chicago or Evanston in our collective sin as Jesus wept over Jerusalem? I believe these are some questions that Palm Sunday asks us to consider. Why not, ask, <clears throat> why not ask God to give us tears for our cities? The violence, the political corruption, the sexual perversions, the financial scandals. Did you know that our tears are special to God? In Psalm 56, verse 8, the psalmist says these incredible words. Speaking of God, he says, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. Did you know that God has a tear bottle for your tears? Several years ago, I was, one of my trips to Israel, I was passing by in the old city of Jerusalem, a merchant that sold tear bottles. In the ancient world, they made these little clay jars to collect their tears as a memorial to remember the pain, the suffering. Maybe it was the loss of a loved one or a disaster of a famine or sickness or disease that came to the village or the city, and people would purchase or make these little tear bottles and collect their tears. I think God wants to remind us that he too sees our tears and he himself weeps for us and he weeps over our cities, our sin-sick cities. May we never get so numb to it all, but we, may we remain tender in our hearts as our Lord remains tender and longs to gather the citizens of our city like, he, like a hen gathers her chicks. Years ago, God gripped my own heart over the city of uh, Jerusalem, or the city of Chicago, I should say. God gripped my own heart as I became more and more aware of the violence that gripped our city. And it really devastated me. It, it, it pained my heart to see this gun violence that so gripped our city. And God led me to this new assignment, this new chapter in my own life, this new ministry called Together Chicago, and I'm so grateful for this church's support and this new mission to 
reduce gun violence in Chicago, and increase thriving communities. But I want us to go back for a moment and examine further the two different responses of our, to, to our Lord. We have the response of the crowds on the one hand, the response of the Pharisees on the other hand. Listen, if you thought President Donald Trump was divisive, Jesus is even more so. It's incredible. Uh, if you th think he was not a polarizing figure, you'd be mistaken. But Jesus wasn't polarizing because he was rude or brash or condescending or braggadocious. Jesus is most polarizing because he is king of kings and lord of lords. He's polarizing because he is perfect and everybody else is imperfect. He's polarizing because he speaks the hard truth that few people want to hear. He's polarizing because he represents the kingdom of God and not the kingdoms or the agendas of men. Jesus Christ is polarizing because he made people still think are outrageous and outlandish claims to be God in the flesh. But he had miraculous works to prove it. He, he demonstrated sacrificial love on that cruel Roman cross to prove it. And he rose up from that grave to prove it. Have you ever tried to put yourself in the shoes of the crowds that first century crowd who witnessed Jesus' miracles, who heard his preaching, who walked with him. On that first Palm Sunday, you ever try to put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisees? If you and I lived in that day, whose side would we be on? Would we be in the crowds waving the palm branches and shouting, Hosanna? to the king of kings? Or would we be standing in the corner asking Jesus to silence the crowds and shoo them away and deny his deity? If you continue to read on into the next few chapters of Luke, what you'll see unfold is how the misguided and unbridled passion of men led to the passion of Christ. We can see the emotional tensions in the text beginning to rise. And Jesus is the issue. Jesus is the dividing issue. He's the one causing this division between the religious scholars and the common people. And you'll remember that the scholars eventually convinced the crowds later on on that Holy Week, the religious scholars convinced the crowds and even the Roman government to turn against Jesus, demanding his excruciating crucifixion. Both the crowds and the Pharisees had plenty of zeal, but not enough knowledge and perhaps not enough humility to ask clarifying questions that would lead them 
to the right conclusion about Jesus. As we've seen, even in our own day, with all the race riots and marches demanding justice for black men and women who were unjustly killed, it's easy for crowds of people to be whipped into frenzy for a good cause. But then things get easily twisted and suddenly we have division and strife on display over a just cause. Few people remain calm enough to think and to ask clarifying questions. So lesson number one is this. Emotions are good. God gave us emotions, but they are to be guided by truth. They are to be guided by facts which will lead us to righteous indignation and right actions and eventually to true justice. So be careful when following the zealous crowds or even the religious zealots. Seek first to understand before being understood. Understand the facts of the situation. Then ask, what biblical truth or principles should be applied to the facts of the situation? And then, prayerfully ask God for wisdom to respond in a Christ-like way to the person or to the situation. The sad reality was, on that Palm Sunday, on that Holy Week, neither the crowds nor the religious zealots paused to ask clarifying questions. They were so full of zeal and emotionalism, they disengaged their minds and their spiritual request for wisdom from God. Lesson number two, beware of those who have a critical and judgmental spirit because it is contagious and you just might catch it. Beware of those who have a critical and judgmental spirit because it is contagious and you just might catch it. Through All throughout the Gospels, we find that Jesus' greatest critic, his greatest critics were the religious zealots. And Jesus had his harshest criticism for those religious zealots. But their criticisms were not based on truth. They were not based on righteousness. They were based on jealousy and their desire to hold on to power and influence in the religious world. Today's church Leaders are not immune from negative and critical spirits. This evil spirit will put out the fire of love that glows in the heart of every true believer. Interestingly, Jesus was self-assured of his mission and his purpose. And so nothing deterred him, though he was greatly tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane, you might remember. The Garden of Gethsemane, interestingly, that word Gethsemane means the place of crushing. And in that Garden of Gethsemane, when he was tempted to abandon and abort the mission 
through sweating tears, uh, drops of blood, Christ surrendered to his purpose and his divine mission. And he calmly persevered to the bitter end, which we now know was not the end at all, was it? But only a three-day disruption to his glorious eternity. Lesson number three. Neither men nor God will meet all your expectations. Does that surprise you? Neither men nor God will meet all your expectations. See, it doesn't matter who's in the White House or the State House or City Hall. No man or woman will meet every need or expectation that you have. Why? Because mankind is imperfect. You say, yeah, yeah, but I get that part, but what about God? Not even the perfect God will meet all your expectations because sometimes we have the wrong expectations, don't we? <laughs> it's not God's problem. It's our problem. We need an attitude adjustment sometimes. We need to adjust our expectation to expect the right things. Let me explain. For example, shouldn't we expect our religious leaders to lead us to God? Shouldn't we expect them to recognize Jesus and follow him and lead us to him? That is a rational and reasonable expectation. But most of the first century religious leaders in Jesus' day did not recognize him, did they? They did not follow him and they did not lead others to him, at least not to worship him as Messiah. That expectation was not met because these religious men were sinners, not yet saved by God's grace. Instead, it was the crowds who recognized Jesus by his miracles and profound teachings. It was they who first followed and believed him. Here's an example of an unmet expectation of Jesus. Jesus did not enter Jerusalem on a white horse, did he? But as you know, that's what they were expecting. He didn't come into the city riding on a triumphal, triumphant white horse like the ancient kings, kings would on that day that they were crowned king. Even Jesus' disciples, the 12, they were expecting this. And that's why it says in other gospel accounts that his disciples did not understand all of this at first. They were confused like so many others. And that's why Jesus quoted the prophet Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, when he said, as a reminder of what the scriptures prophesied about him on this day. Unlike the worldly kings, Jesus is humble. He's gentle. And his humility and gentleness is signified by him riding on a young donkey and not a mighty stallion. Now there is a time there will be a time and a place for the mighty stallion, but you got to wait till the book of Revelation for that. When Christ comes again, he'll be on that white horse, the scripture says. Jesus has taught us many life lessons during his time of calm before his final storm. 
And I pray that this Holy Week, you will take time to meditate on this passage and other passages in the pericopes, other passages in the other gospel passages on this Holy Week. And I pray that God will help us to ask clarifying questions. God will help us to to learn the life lessons offered in this text. Number one, emotions are good, but they must be guided by truth and wisdom. Number two, beware of those who have a critical and judgmental spirit. They are contagious. You might catch it. Ask God to, will you ask God to give you a discerning spirit, a discernment to either avoid such people or avoid being such a person? Number three, neither men nor God will meet all your expectations. Men will disappoint you because they are human. God will disappoint you because you're human. And you and I sometimes have ungodly expectations. Will you let God adjust your expectations? If you do, then you and I will have peace. We'll have peace even in the midst of our greatest storms. May God bless the preaching and teaching of his word. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that is ours to have a copy of your sacred word in our language to have the freedom to worship, to gather freely as your body expressed in these frail human beings. Thank you for your presence here this morning. Teach us, help us, may your your word take root and bear fruit in our lives. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and all God's people said. Amen.